Well, this morning we're excited to have uh, my friend Michael here with us to preach the word. And uh, Michael and his wife Brittany, uh, they're planning on planting a church in Halifax in 2020. And so as a presbytery, we're uh, encouraging them, supporting them. And as a young church plant ourselves, we know uh, all of the, the energy and, and sacrifice and generosity required from a community for that to happen. And we're thankful for that here at Redeemer. And so really our, our prayer and our support is with uh, Michael and Brittany and their four kids as they prepare to, uh, to plant in Hamilton for God's glory to see, uh, sorry, Halifax. <laughs> so, yeah, Halifax. Did I say Hal- Hamilton earlier as well? Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, two city. Yeah. One church, two locations. No, I'm just kidding. No, he's not. He's not that big a deal, is he? <laughs> Uh, but uh, anyhow, I love Michael. Uh, we, we, we met at Presbytery, and we just continue to connect there. And I love his passion for the gospel. I love his passion for the word of God, which you'll experience in a minute as he comes to encourage you. Uh, I love his humor and his joy. Uh, he's, a, he's a Jays fan, listens to the Jays on the radio, faithfully old school style. Um, sometimes when he's not doing that, he likes to work on his cauliflower ear there in, in martial arts. So if there's any martial arts enthusiasts, you can challenge him after the service. He'd be happy to go on those colorful mats there and perhaps show you. I'm volunteering him for all kinds of things he never signed up for. And, uh, but uh, I just wanted to uh, say thank you, Michael, for coming to encourage us uh, in God's word this morning. And uh, we are with you, uh, not just in, in prayers, but uh, in, our, in our financial support. We want to encourage this plant in Halifax next year. So after the service, he'll have a table set up or a laptop set up on a table. You can sign up there to get um, updates from Michael, uh, be on, the, on his letter. Uh, some of you who may want to support that plant with a financial gift, then I encourage you to do that as well. You can uh, chat with Michael after the service, and he'll be available there. So, Michael, if you'd come now, encourage us in God's word. Thanks. First time someone's pointed out a defect in my ear before preaching. That's, <laughs> but it's okay. Some people, you know, they see it, they don't know what's going on. This is acquired after many hours, so it's a, it's, a, it's a badge of honor in some circles, very limited circles. In most other circles, it's just weird. I get, I get stared at. But yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting. Um, church planning with the PCA, they were looking for Canadians. Paul and I were both like, yes, we're in. Any of you half Guyanese? Yes, we're both, yeah, I guess. Uh, anyone with a beard? Yeah, sure, both of us. Young? Just me? Just me? Yeah. Okay, so, um, but it, it's, you can't have everything. That's all right. Um, if you open your Bibles, we are in Luke. From what I understand, you were, you've been in Luke or you've been traveling around. I think uh, Paul brought you up to verse 36, and that's where we're going to be starting in right now. We're in Luke 36, reading to the, Luke 24, starting in verse 36, reading to the end. So if you have your Bibles, open up. We're going to be moving around a little bit, so have your, have your apps ready, um, whatever you need. So this is Luke 36. This is God's word to us this morning. Said, keep on saying Luke 36. It's Luke 24, 36. If any of you have Luke 36 in your Bible, it's not a good Bible. <laughs> Verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. 
Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, your witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the time that you've given us with your word. Thank you for speaking to your people, for feeding us uh, with the words of your mouth. I ask that you would encourage us, that you would nourish us today as we look at your word. Please change us. Help us to be your church, God. Uh, for, for those who are here, who, who aren't part of this church, who are visiting, I pray that you would bless and encourage them that, that your son Jesus and his grace uh, would be made evident, would be made seen, seen as beautiful and, and, and welcoming and joyful. I ask that we would, we would see you and know you this morning through your word. You pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, there's some pretty big life events that have happened uh, in my family, having kids. Um, last night, the Raptors game, I think that was a fairly large life event. But, but there's ones that, you know, have, have repercussions even beyond me personally and my particular family that have happened in the past. So um, when my grandfather decided to leave Guyana and, and make his way to Canada, that had a big impact on the, rest of, uh, on the rest of our family. And, you know, you keep on going back and you look at historical events, life events, romances and tragedies, uh, deaths and births, great failures, great successes. They, they have this ripple effect. They, they touch more things than, than what's in the immediate vicinity. So if you think of something like the assassination of JFK many generations ago, a lot of people from that generation say that that kind of changed everything. It changed our view of the world. Um, for those of you who were uh, awake when Donald Trump was elected, some people were like, the world's never going to be the same. Everything's different all over. Um, and and one, one big thing for my generation was 9-11. Now, it depends on how old you were with that, but there's a, there's a, a clear differentiation between a pre-9-11 world and a post-9-11 world. And this uh, extends not only to how we see, you know, geopolitical relations, one nation to another, you know, cause some wars and skirmishes all over the world, but simply even in the way that you travel, right? Some of you can remember pre-9-11 travel and post-9-11 travel. Pre-9-11 travel, what was it? You just kind of show up at the airport with your ticket, you're on the plane, and they might pat you down or ask, do you have any knives? You don't? Okay, you're in. Whereas now, there is extended screening, metal detectors, you know, you go through the, the machine where you put your hands on. It's really bad news if your skin is my tint, all right? It's, it's particularly dangerous. I don't know why I have a beard. I should shave it before. Before I go, my last name's already impronounceable, so it's, it, it doesn't make things easy. Uh, the, immediately after 9-11 when I was traveling, they always have the, the random security checks before you get on the flight. It was always me. I was like, I need to buy a lottery ticket because we're going to have one totally random check, you, come on, and, and just happen over and over again. Again, the, this pre-9-11, post-9-11, it, it is wildly different, but for some of you younger folk, all you know is post-9-11, right? Going to the airport... Getting the, you know, taking your shoes off, doing the whole to-do, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's not a big deal. It's just kind of what we do. And so it takes some effort, it takes particular thinking to think, what's, what's different about this? How has the world been changed? Uh, it, you need to have eyes to see 
how 9-11 has changed something like air travel. And the ascension of Jesus Christ is one of those momentous historical events where everything was changed. Because we live in a post-ascension world, it takes us just a little bit more effort to think about what has actually changed in the world. How are we different? How is the church different? How are the people of God changed by the ascension? Again, this world that we live in, whether you know it or not, is post-ascension. That is what we call Jesus being carried up into heaven, the end of his earthly ministry and the beginning of his heavenly ministry. We live in a post-ascension world where Jesus himself is no longer on the earth with his people, but he is at the right hand of God. He is ruling with all of authority in heaven beside his Father. Hebrews 7 says that from heaven he is interceding for his people, he's praying for them, he's ministering um, on their behalf in heaven. That, that is what it is to be in a post-ascension world. Now, in the church, we give the resurrection of Jesus a lot of press time, and, and we ought to. The resurrection of Jesus, him being uh, killed on a cross, buried in a tomb, three days later, rising from the dead, we give the resurrection uh, a, a lot of time, and, and good on us. We ought to. It was a huge moment. We said, the tomb is empty. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. But I want you to notice in the text that we have this morning, Paul, can I put this here? Yeah. Is that okay? Okay. Um, Notice the reaction of the disciples. Look at verses 36 through 41. What is their, their visceral, their immediate reaction to the resurrection? Just, just kind of scan some of the words in 36 through 41. The disciples are troubled. They are doubting. They, they disbelieve what they see. They are marveling at the resurrection. They're having a really tough time seeing Jesus, who they know very well, had died, was buried. Uh, they have a hard time re- understanding what the resurrection means. But if you look down at verses 50 through 53, look at at the reaction to the ascension, kind of what it produces in the disciples. We see that they're joyful, they're worshipful, they're communal, they're together, they're they're obedient. How does does an ascension world change us? How how do we account for the changes in the disciples from this fairly scared, insecure group to, to a very bold, joyful, worshiping group? We're going to look at three main points. If you're into notes, I didn't do a note for the bulletin. I probably should have. But um, there's three main things that we're going to look at. In an ascension world, these three things are key to understanding this post-ascension world. First, in this post-ascension world, the resurrection is real. The church's witness is twice as fleshy. And third, Jesus is in charge. In a post-ascension world, the resurrection is real. The church's witness is twice as fleshy. And third, Jesus is in charge. So first... In an ascension world, the resurrection is real. Uh, Verse 36, in case you didn't see it, it kind of picks up mid-story as they were talking about these things. And I'll just give you some details of of what's going on. Uh, Last week, if you weren't here, Paul talked about how Jesus began to appear to select groups of individuals. Uh, He met some, the very first witnesses of the resurrection were some of his disciples, some women who went to the tomb, saw that it was empty, they had an encounter with an angel, one of them had an encounter with Jesus himself. Uh, On the road to Emmaus, a a town in the area, Jesus appeared to at least two or maybe more disciples, and they realized who it was, it was Jesus himself. And so in verse 36, these disciples, probably these women or the, the, the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, they catch up with the 11, so... The 12 of the disciples minus one, Judas, who had betrayed Jesus. There's 11 of them. At least there might be a larger group. But they're talking about these things. What is going on? <laughs> like, Jesus was dead, and we saw him. We also saw an angel. Maybe two. The tomb is empty. He's alive. 
was it a vision? Was it a hallucination? Is there some sort of conspiracy? They really don't know what's going on. They're, they're perplexed about these things. They're discussing them. What, what is happening? And then what happens in the text here? Verse 36, it doesn't have the word boom, but it's kind of like boom. Jesus is in the room with them, right? And the disciples are just doubly scared, doubly confused. And so Jesus says the classic Jesus line, peace be to you, right? Shalom, take it easy, all right? Uh, John's gospel actually adds the detail that um, the doors were locked. So this is like a, a startling moment for them. What would you think if this friend of yours who you had seen um, dead and buried appeared suddenly in the room with you three days later? It's a ghost, right? That's your immediate response. You got you to acknowledge this. He shows up out of nowhere. It's a ghost. It's a spirit. Of course it is, right? Would you immediately be like, oh, of course. Of course you're here. Great. Have a seat. No, your reaction would be probably what these disciples are. There's no screaming, but there probably was something like that. In in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, I don't know if you've ever read it, Scrooge encounters his deceased um, business partner, a guy named uh, Jacob Marley, and Scrooge starts having an argument with Marley because he doesn't believe that Marley is actually there. It's a great dialogue. I'll just read it for you. The ghost looks at Scrooge and says, You don't believe in me? I don't, said Scrooge. What evidence would you have... Of my reality beyond that of your senses? The the ghost asked. I don't know, said Scrooge. Well, why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheat. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. And then the money line, there's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Scrooge does not believe what he's seeing. Now, if you're, if you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, rather, and you hear this story about the resurrection of Jesus, your response should just be, that's bananas. That, that's religious mumbo-jumbo. It's unscientific. It's, it's uh, uh, superstitious. Simply, it's impossible, right? This isn't a, a realistic, possible story. If you apply Occam's razor, you just cut away the supernaturalness, and, and you come up with another explanation of it. This is some sort of scam. Uh, this is a, a made-up story. You know, whatever you've got. And, and if you think that, then you're actually in very good company, because Jesus' own disciples would agree with you in this moment, right? They didn't see Jesus and, and, and say, of course you're here. This is what happens. Resurrection like this, uh, appearance of dead friends. This is totally normal. No, they doubted with every bit... Uh, uh, a vigor that you and I would if we, if we experienced this, or even a skeptic would experience this. So they, they doubted too. They didn't trust their eyes. They were scared and confused. They were trying to find other explanations for what it was. And then Jesus does something very profound. He says in verse 38, why are you troubled? Why do these doubts arise in your heart? Verse 39, see my hands and my feet. It's, it, it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. See, Jesus he goes beyond this realm of like ideas and, and simple vision, but he allows the people to, to approach him, to touch him, to feel him, to see that he's real. Verse 42, fantastic, he eats broiled fish in their presence with a wink, like, do spirits do this? Is this a group hallucination? I'm, I'm eating your food. I'm here. You can touch me, all right? The apostle John, he was one of the disciples who was in the room that day, and he had seen Jesus died. He was one of these scared, confused, doubting disciples. And in a letter called 1 John, which we have in our scriptures, he was writing to a a very young church in the first century, and he tells this young Christian church, he writes this, this is from 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, 
the life was made manifest and we have seen it. See, John is saying, and Luke is saying here, that the resurrection is real. Like, it's real, real. It's surprising, it's alarming, it's confusing, but it is real. It, it is handshaking real. It is fish-eating real. Like, it, it is in the realm of hard truth. It's not an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's real. In the post-ascension world, resurrection life is a real thing. And we see that this isn't resuscitation life, right? This isn't somebody who died and then was back alive and then later on died. There is something much more, something, something more profound happening here. Because Jesus, again, there's that boom moment where he just appears in the room. So Jesus, though he is physical, though he is real, he's more than real. There's something else at work here. He's not bound by the same limitations that you and I are by our flesh and bones. Again, verse 36, he just appears in a room. Um, doors are locked. He's in there. Um, later on in verse 53 or 52, we see him being carried up into heaven. Again, something that normal flesh and bone are, are limited. We, we can't do that. Uh, I don't know if you know the, the, what the word amphibian means or, or where it comes from. It comes from a Greek word amphibios, which means both kinds of life. All right? So amphibians are creatures that belong equally in the water and on land. They're, they're totally comfortable wherever they are. So turtles, um, salamanders, uh, even seals and otters could be considered amphibians to a degree. And the resurrection Jesus is kind of like that. The resurrection life of Jesus is like that in that he is just as home on earth as he is in heaven. He is equally at home in the abode of God, the dimension of, of what we'd call like the spiritual, where God's presence is perfect and visceral, as he is on earth. He is just as comfortable in both places, eating fish or being in God's presence. And by the way, as an aside, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says, this is what we are headed to. If you, if you are part of God's people, though you die, you will live again in this resurrection life. Not, not exactly like this. We'll probably still eat fish. Sorry, vegetarians. But we'll, we will be more than fleshly. We will be equally at home on earth as, as we are in heaven. God is making a new heavens and a new earth. That is what we are headed to. That is resurrection life. So here's a principle for you to keep in mind here. Resurrection life. What, what resurrection life is, is it's always embodied in the flesh, but empowered by the Spirit. That is resurrection life. If you, if you ever want to talk about resurrection life, this is what it means. It's not just holy spiritual, it's not holy fleshly, it's both. It's embodied in the flesh and powered by the spirit. Holy natural, holy supernatural. So again, post-ascension, this reality, resurrection life, is a real thing, all right? That, that's what it means to live in this ascension era. Um, so that's, that's our first thing. Resurrection is real in a post-ascension world. Secondly, in an ascension world, the church is twice as fleshy. That's kind of a weird way of saying it. I was trying to, I don't know how to say it. But there's, there's two different things that I mean by saying that, that the witness of the church is, is fleshy. It's got, it's got skin on it. I want you to look at verse 44 first. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead. What Jesus is doing, he's giving a little Bible lesson to his disciples, but he's doing something very unique. This happened on the road to Emmaus. I don't want to one-up Paul if he, if he already gave this, uh, this teaching, but Jesus is saying the whole Bible... All of the Old Testament scriptures, what we call them, basically Genesis through Malachi, the, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, are all about him. Even though he's not mentioned specifically by name, 
All of the Old Testament is about Jesus and is fulfilled by Jesus in his earthly ministry and in his ascension ministry. There's an incredible diversity in the Bible. When you get to the Old Testament, when you look at the, the, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, there's poetry, there's historical prose, um, there's prophetic utterances. It, it's a really huge catalog of different things. But Jesus is saying that it's all about him. If this is hard for you to understand, it's hard for the disciples to understand. So Jesus does something very unique. He opens their minds to the scripture and then something just clicks. They finally get it. The key to all of this, how the scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus, is in his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. That's what he says in verse 46. And now this, 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 this story, this, this reality of repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Let me try to tie this together for you. Jesus is saying if you don't understand him, him in the flesh, the man Jesus, you don't understand the Bible. If you don't get Jesus, the man, the one with flesh and bones, you do not understand the Old Testament. You don't understand the Bible. Um, my son Calvin is here right now. I told him that I'd, I'd share the story. I don't know if he's paying attention. My son Calvin is really into Batman and Spider-Man, big time, okay? He's got a lot of gear. He's got the underwear. He's got the jammies. He's got the coloring book. He has costumes. He has, like, uh, an entire basket of weaponry related to these superheroes. You talk to him about Batman or Spider-Man, big fan, all right? He's really into them. But here's the thing about it. Calvin has never seen a Batman or Spider-Man movie in his life. <laughs> He's never seen a television show. Can't, can't read yet. So he hasn't read a comic book, all right? So all of his information about Batman and Spider-Man is secondhand. It comes from, you know, stories that I might say occasionally, don't really give him too many details. His much more cultured five-year-old friends who have seen it, you know, will explain some of what they are. In his coloring books, you get kind of an idea of what Batman and Spider-Man are about. They're muscular like his father. Um, they, they, they fight a lot. You know, they, they've got, you know, they're, they're pretty cool. He gets that. They're, they're very cool. Now, Calvin's knowledge of Batman and Spider-Man it's not wrong. It is just woefully incomplete. Like, like wildly, just a shadow of, of the substance of Batman and Spider-Man, right? He's got a shadowy knowledge, not, not, a, not a totally dead wrong knowledge, but it's, imperfe it's imperfect, right? There is so much more that needs to be understood to, to fill out the understanding of who Batman and Spider-Man are. And listen, this morning, you may know your Bible pretty well. Right? You might have attended church for a long time. You might have grown up in a religious home and you know a lot of religious stuff. You've got the religious bumper sticker, you know, the faith, hope, love, uh, you know, wood cutting in your, in your living room or whatever. But if you don't know the person of Jesus Christ, if you don't know the forgiveness and love of the man who is in flesh and bones, who was crucified and rose again, you're like Calvin. Your religion is all shadow and no substance. It's religious sounding. It's like I, you seem to get it. But you don't get it. You're missing the heart of it. See, Christians, the church sometimes makes their witness about something other than the flesh, other than Jesus in the flesh, what he has done. And so you can actually find justification for this sometimes in the Bible. So you'll find people who are all about the law. They're all about morality, all about keeping your nose clean. That, that is their witness as a church. We are a church that, that man, we are obedient to the, to the nth degree, and Christianity is all about keeping the rules, right? Sometimes you'll find a church that's all about the prophetic. Let's speak truth to those who are in power. Let's change society. Let's fight injustices, right? Or you might find a church that's all about the spiritual, right? They, they deal with the depths of our emotions, healing our hurts, praying, communing with the divine God, 
or, or improving ourselves spiritually. Now, all of those things that I've just said, morality, prophetic uh, power in fighting, uh, fighting injustice and, and pursuing mercy, even, even growing spiritually and dealing with the depths of our emotions, you can find all those things in the Bible, and they're all true, and they're all good, but they are incomplete. None of these things are ultimate. Again, look at verses 46 through 48. What is Jesus saying is, is, the, is the fulfillment of all of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. It's about him. It's about him in the flesh, what he has done. The primary witness of us as a church, our primary joy, what we should be all about is a man, Jesus Christ. That, that should be the most evident thing about Kitchener-Waterloo, our Redeemer, sorry, is that you are excited about the, flesh, the fleshiness of Jesus, what he has done. This is what Christians call the good news, the gospel. It's a report about Christ, what Christ has done for us. See, the good news, friends, is that you can be saved, you can be forgiven, your guilt can be dealt with, right? And it's not after a long life of working really hard to, to improve yourself, um, you know, acts of, acts of contrition, trying to, again, self-improvement. Salvation is accomplished on your behalf by a person, somebody with flesh and bones. Jesus has done in the flesh what your flesh couldn't do. It takes the whole Bible to tell that story, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and they're all ultimately pointing to this one witness. And if you are going out into your workplace, into your, into your um, home, if you're going out into the world with a message without the fleshiness of who Jesus is, you are offering the world a cup with no water. You're giving them a car with no engine. You're, you're offering them a pen with no ink. You are, you're giving the shell of religion without the real heart, what it's all about. It's the man, Jesus Christ. And so this is what Jesus sends his church out to do, sends his people to do, as witnesses of him. That's what verse 49 says, right? But he doesn't just send his people out on their own in, in their flesh. He sends them out clothed in the spirit. Remember, we talked about what resurrection life is. It's embodied in the flesh, but empowered by the spirit. And that's what, that's what Jesus does in verse 49. That's what he's referring to, the promise of my father. He's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, this, this powerful working of God, God himself with his people. We're to go out into the nations, into our neighborhoods, as witnesses of Jesus. And he goes with us. So here's, here's, here's another principle. If resurrection life is embodied in the flesh and empowered by the Spirit, so too the ministry of the church, the ministry of Christians is always those two things, embodied in the flesh and empowered by the Spirit. See, the church's witness is, is twice as fleshy because it's primarily about Jesus Christ, a person with flesh and bones, but it is always done by people with flesh and blood. It's always done by us. The, the type of ministry that Jesus wants to do in the world is done by humans who have been sent out by him. So maybe you've got this question. Sometimes I write questions and I realize no one's actually asking these questions. Let me give you a good question to ask me, okay? What does fleshy ministry look like? What is, what is flesh-bound, spirit-empowered Christian ministry look like? What's the shape of it? We're in a post-ascension world where resurrection life is real for the church. We're embodying the flesh and powered by the Spirit. What should be different about this church? Well, a couple things. I think three things I have. First is that our repentance ought to be holistic. All right? you, you, you see that um, there in verse 47, right? This is a key thing to the fulfillment of the Scriptures is repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So our repentance ought to be holistic. See, repentance, the definition of it is something like... Um, a radical realignment 
of our core disposition and behavior to be in line with God's. It's a whole lot of words, all right? It means doing a 180. Sometimes pastors, they mix it up and they say, it means doing a 360. That means you're going in the same direction. You're doing a 180. You're turning around. Everything about your life has changed. That's what repentance is, okay? But it's holistic. It's not simply how we relate to God, but it ends up being how we relate to the people around us. Um, My wife and I, we have four kids, six and under. Things are a little nutty, as you can imagine. There's lots of use a very kind word, there's lots of friction between human beings, all right? Um, there's people, there's words, there's, you know, things flying all over the house, and we need to repent often. In our home, there's a lot of repentance, lots of opportunities to make things right. Um, not only between our relationship with God, because we realize we're being impatient, we're not living in line with, with God and, and how he wants us to live and act towards our children, but also towards each other. We're not behaving properly towards one another. And one time we were out, um, we were with a, another couple, and we're having dinner, and my six-year-old, Annie, I think she was like four or five at the time, but she came up and she's like, Mom and Dad, I just want to repent. I was, uh, I was a little grumpy back there. Would you please forgive me? It's like, of course, Annie, of course. It's, it's fine. And the other couple's like, what? I'm like, what weird family do you have? I'm like, oh, Annie only knows to do that because we do it to her. We do that same liturgy over and over again. Like, we have to apologize to Annie over and over again. Annie, I'm sorry for being impatient with you. Would you please forgive me? Annie, I'm sorry again. I was impatient. Would you please forgive me? The repentance that we have towards Annie, she's just imitating what she sees. But I want you to see how fleshy repentance is. It's how you relate to your children. Right? It's how you relate to your neighbor. It's not simply this, this spiritual thing, I'm going to make things right between me and God, but it extends outwards. The, the church's ministry has, has skin on it, and there's skin in the game. First John again, one of the disciples, he wrote in chapter 4, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In the ministry of the church, it's embodied in the flesh. It's powered by the Spirit. Friends, do you have a Christianity that's way too spiritual? Right? It's just you and Jesus. The substance of your Christianity is you and your Bible and a cup of coffee. You have great quiet times with God, but you are dominated by impatience and selfishness towards your spouse or towards your neighbors or towards your children. Maybe your Christianity, too, is too natural. You're a great neighbor. You're, you're a great coworker. Uh, You do good for anyone who asks, but you are not willing to witness to the sufferings and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, the ascension means a very holistic view of repentance. It's flesh and spirit. It's dealing with God, but it's dealing with our neighbors as well. Second, another mark of a ministry that's embodied in the flesh is that we will feel it in our flesh. It'll hurt. It'll be hard. It's going to cost us. It's going to leave a mark. See, Christ suffered. His ministry to us wasn't simply philosophical or educational, but it cost Jesus. He suffered in the flesh. And his disciples are told by Jesus, and as we've seen throughout Christian history, that they too suffer in the flesh for Jesus. So much so that this promise of the Spirit to go with us is is really the only confidence that we can have that we're going to make it to the end, is that um, Jesus is going to empower us. He's going to allow us to do these difficult things in our flesh. I have a friend who's a pastor in Connecticut, a guy named Chip, um, which is a great name, and he has a very young church, and um, there's a a woman who was attending his church. She had an elderly mother uh, who suddenly became very ill. This elderly mother was very skeptical of of the evangelical church, and probably, you know, rightly deserved. Uh, She didn't really trust these guys that her daughter was hanging out with. Um, She attended another church in the area, but anyways, she she wasn't a big fan of Chip's church. It was this, this elderly woman fell ill, and 
the daughter who attended the church say, hey, we need to rally, rally around her. Low in resources, uh, you know, not a lot of friends. Let, let's just do our best to love her. And so Chip's church just went all out in caring for her, providing meals, uh, probably financial resources. You know, healthcare in the States is pretty expensive. Just, just surrounded this elderly woman with no relationship to the church with love, with care, with comfort. And this is what the woman said to, to Chip, the, the older woman who was skeptical about him. She said this, my church told me that they were praying for me, but you showed me. The church that I went to, they gave me words. They said they loved me. But, but your church showed me that you love me. First John again. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. See, the ministry of the church, when it's properly fleshy, is not thoughts and prayers. It's not telling the poor in your community, be warm and well-fed. It's not telling the lonely, I hope that you'll be comforted. It's not telling the broken who are around you, I hope God heals you. No, rather, God sends us in the flesh to be of comfort, to give warmth, to, to, to heal those who are broken. So those are the three different kind of markers of a very fleshy church. And this is, this is kind of now we're jumping to the third, the final mark of, of what it means to live in this post-ascension world. Um, a post-ascension world is marked by um, sentness. Sentness. Back in Genesis chapter 12, we made a man named Abraham. He's the patriarch. He's, he's the great poobah. He's one of the first men to have this relationship with God in a unique way, um, you know, uh, and so God chooses this man, this man Abraham, seemingly out of nowhere, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless your socks off. Uh, I'm going to make you a big deal. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you millions of descendants, and I'm going to make you wealthy. But Abraham, listen, this isn't, this isn't just for your pleasure. This isn't just for your good. Uh, through you, I'm going to bless every nation. I'm going to bless everyone through you. This is, to this day, the way that God, God's blessings flow out. They flow through people. God blesses his people so that we can be sent out to bless others. We receive good. The church receives good so that we can be of good to others. God's blessings aren't a dead end. They aren't something that we're just to be enjoyed within the confines of your home. But it is a ramp onto a highway where we go out. We go out with God's blessings for others. And in Luke 24, the disciples, they face the sudden embarrassment of riches, right? They are blessed to the nth degree. Their friend and their master, Jesus, has resurrected. Their minds have finally been opened. They understand the scriptures now in a unique way. Um, they've, they've experienced the redeeming, the forgiving love of God. Their guilt is gone. Their sin has been washed away. They've even been promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now in verses 50 and 51, you see that Jesus himself is blessing them as he, as he rises, as he ascends to his heavenly throne. What are the disciples to do with all of these blessings? All of this new joy and gladness. It's very clear. They are, they are sent out. They are told to go. God sends them away to bless others. And if you know Jesus this morning, and you've been forgiven and restored and empowered and befriended and illuminated by Jesus' grace, the direction that God points you to isn't inward to your own Bible study and to your own home, but it's to go out into your neighborhood and into your workplaces, into your families with his love and with his blessings, out into your homes and schools and neighborhoods and workplaces, into the church. We are called to be the, the, the brightest light in the darkest of places. 
And if you're visiting us this morning, you know, you're not part of this church, you're kind of skeptical of the church, let me, let me apologize on behalf of Christians for not always being this, this sent force of good in the world. That's to our shame. That is contrary to the mission that we've been sent out to do. I want you to take notes of this sermon and remind your Christian friend, this is what your master, Jesus, is calling you to, to be a blessing to those around you, to not be a hindrance of any sort. This is our, this is our calling, friends, to be sent out ones. All right, let's recap. I think I got a little lost. Maybe you got a little lost. In an ascension world, resurrection life is real. In an ascension world, the church's witness is twice as fleshy, and this is final. In an ascension world, Jesus is in charge. In an ascension world, Jesus is in charge. Look at verses 50 through 51. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. That's just a little while outside of Jerusalem. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And I don't know about you, the ascension for me has always felt more unreal than the resurrection. I don't, I don't know why that is. It seems a little bit more otherworldly. We don't talk about it very much in the church, at least in, in the churches that I've been around. The resurrection, again, takes this, this greater place. I'm not exactly sure why, but it's interesting to see that for the disciples, the ascension doesn't cause the type of fear and alarm and what, what's going on like the resurrection did, right? And some of it, I think, is because they, they understand, they've been illuminated to, to understand what resurrection life is all about. Right? It's about being embodied in the flesh, but also empowered by the Spirit. Jesus ascending into heaven, it's kind of easy-peasy for them because they recognize who Jesus is, this, this earthly, heavenly man. In a world where resurrection life is real, the ascension isn't too hard to believe. So if you're having a hard time with the ascension, just remember all that the resurrection means. But why does Jesus go up? Like, how come he just doesn't disappear? How come he doesn't go down? Is, is there meaning to this in particular? Uh, well, there's two meanings, I think, that are... That are presented in the scriptures and, and here kind of uh, alluded to, all right? First, it gives finality to Jesus's departure, and it, and it uh, so we'll deal with that first. It, it um, gives finality. It ends, gives a stamp. Jesus's earthly ministry is done at this moment. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, it's the immediate sequel, part 2 of Luke, um, the disciples, it finds the disciples looking up. So it's a great sequel where everyone's looking up at Jesus, and there's angels with them all of a sudden, and they ask, why are you looking up? It's done. Jesus, Jesus is in heaven. He's going to come back sometime, but you don't need to look up. You need to go. You need, you need to obey him. And this is, this is again, just this, this firm closing. He's gone. He's up. No going back to the good old days, right? Um, there will be a day where Jesus comes again at the end of human history in his own timing, but until then, we are in a post-ascension world. Jesus has given his marching orders to the church. Be embodied. Be empowered witnesses. Go to the nations. So first, the ascension going up puts this stamp of finality. Jesus is ministering, but from heaven. He's not going to be back down here until he, until he ends human history. The second thing that his going up means is that Jesus is now in charge. He has ascended. He is now the highest of all beings. If you can, I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 7. Remember what we talked about? All of the scriptures are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Daniel chapter 7 is one of these amazing passages where we read, uh, read about an ascension. Daniel's in the Old Testament. I need to find it. Ezekiel Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 and then verses 13 through 14. The writers of the New Testament, they, they saw this section in Daniel as being about Jesus. Jesus ascending, going up, and, and what it meant to the church. This is what it says in verse 13, Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, 
With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That is what happened when Jesus ascended. He was given all authority in heaven and on earth. The ascension, the going up of Jesus means he's in charge. There is no throne higher. There is no king higher. There is no government higher. You don't need to worry about the liberals or conservatives because there's someone even higher, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Again, note what joy, what gladness, what obedience this produces in the disciples, knowing that their man is now on the throne. I want you to imagine for a second how you'd feel if your most trusted friend, your bosom buddy, uh, the one that you would entrust your very life to, you knew cared for you the most, the most faithful friend that you've got, became the king or the queen of Canada, if we had a particular king, but is suddenly in charge of everything. The prime minister, I'm like, it's not a really good example because he doesn't have that much power, but just the person with all the maximal power. We live in a different Canada, okay? How would you feel knowing that that person had ascended to the throne, is at the top of the country? Well, you probably have the same type of joy and gladness that the friends of Jesus had. You'd be confident that the one who now had all power was someone that you were able to approach, someone that you loved, somebody who cared about you, who valued you, who, who um, if you went up to and you spoke to, they would listen, that, that, that they cared about you, that, that the decisions that came from the throne room came from someone who is faithful and trustworthy and good. And see, Jesus is that trustworthy friend, only so much more. Jesus' dominion is an everlasting one. His kingdom will never pass away. His power is absolute, and his love is unfathomably deep. And his mercy, even towards his enemies, is tender and patient. It is this Jesus who is ascended, who is in charge. Think about that. Jesus is in charge, and the ascension, his going up, proves it. Even, and I need to add this, even when your life doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? Sometimes, even when I was writing this, I was like, this sounds very triumphalistic, Jesus is in charge, and then you leave the doors and you go into your life, and you're like, doesn't sometimes feel like it, right? If he's in charge, how come my life hurts? How come things don't make sense? How come our world is filled with pain? There are moments in your life where you wonder, does God even care? And you hear that Jesus is in charge, that he has ascended. There's some dissonance in that. Um, There was a, a frog cartoon. I don't even know what comic strip it was in. I read it when I was a kid, but it's always stuck with me, and it's this frog sitting on the lily pad, looking up in heaven, and he's talking to God. This is, you know, in the 90s when there were still comics like this, and the frog says something, something along the lines of, of what I just said. God, the world is so messed up. Why don't you do something about it? And there's, you know, the bubble from heaven saying, that's why I made you. And there's an element of truth in that, right? The world, as messed up as it is, Jesus is in charge, and he's got a plan for it. He is sending his people into it to infiltrate the darkness with laughter and with light. Jesus is caring for this broken, pain-filled world. He is mending it through his sent people. See, Jesus is still at work. His ministry didn't end when he ascended, but rather it was beginning. The Bible has this great analogy for, for what it means to be the church. We are the body of Christ. What a very fleshy way of describing who we are. Jesus Christ is our head, and we are the body of Christ. We are his hands and his feet. 
What a good image to have in mind as we go out into this broken world that Jesus still has physical arms and hands and feet with which he works in the painful here and there of this life. Jesus loves this broken world and to this day is ministering to it in the flesh through his church, through his body. That is his plan. The world is so broken. Why don't you do something for it? I am. I have a people. I have a body. I'm at work even to this day. Um, at our church, we, uh, when, when we baptize a child, we, we have a, a prayer. It's a French prayer. Um, the history of it is a little un, uncertain. It comes from multiple different sources. And as you look at the theology of the church going way back, you can see that the ascension kind of had a, had a higher role kind of a pun actually, but had a, had a more elevated role. Um, they talked about it a lot more. It brought a different level of confidence to them. And I hope that I'm going to read what we read to our, our children or uh, even to adults as we, as we baptize them. And this is, this is the blessing. And here, we look at the child as we're preparing to baptize and we say, for you little child, Jesus Christ has come. For you, he has fought, he has suffered. For you, he entered the shadow of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary. For you, he uttered the cry, it is finished. For you, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And there he intercedes, he prays, for you, little child, even though you do not know it. But in this way, the word of the gospel becomes true. We love him because he first loved us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for loving us, for giving yourself for us, for, for empowering us to do the work that you sent us to do. Uh, we, we, we ask that you would help us to know this great love with which you've loved us, the things that you have done, the, your, your great work on our behalf and in our place. God, we, we are thankful. Um, strengthen your church. Please build Kitchener-Waterloo Redeemer, KW Redeemer. Um, help them to be your hands, your feet, your arms, your legs in this city. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.